Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And last week or so, I asked in the Facebook group what you guys are struggling with, and I appreciate that lots of you gave answers. So we're going to try to do a few shows kind of based on on some of the questions that you had or just the issues that you were struggling with. Uh, a few people asked what it takes to go from four or five figures a year to seven figures or six figures a year. I mean, you can go to seven too, no problem. We're not going to stop you, um, but at least six figures a year. So we're going to discuss that today and uh, keep in mind that we can tell you our experiences, how, how the road has been for us, and suggest, you know, I we put together like a kind of a checklist of what may be some things you may want to be looking into if you are feeling that you're kind of stuck in a rut and, and you have the potential. <laughs> you know, you've written enough books and you feel like you should be doing a lot better. So uh, we will jump into that. First, do you guys want to, I don't know, you have any news or points of interest that you would like to share before we get into the topic? Well, I do, except like my whole rant, Lindsay's like, I know what your problem is. And she solved it in like two sentences, <laughs> but I'm going to go over it anyway, just because I think listeners might appreciate hearing. Um, okay. So I decided to take a good, hard, long look at my Midnight Chronicles and how it was doing. Um, and <clears throat> these are, these are when the cold, hard facts and cash and all of that stuff comes out into the open and with honesty and all of that. And it's not doing fantastic. Um, since the first book was released in October, the whole series has only made me like $1,300. I think it's $1,330 now, <laughs> which I'm like, yay, 30 bucks more. But seriously, like I have in my little notes here, like, like five exclamation points. Like this is the worst a series has done for me in a very long time. And I've spent more on this series than I have on any of my other series, mainly because I did all my other book covers for all my other books. And this one, I did five book covers for each book in the series. And I bought the stock images for all five of those. And then I ended up hiring one cover designer, firing that cover designer, hiring another cover designer. So I spent like over $2,000 on covers alone just for the first four books in the series. And um, I put a lot of money into the launch, which, you know, other people, $3,000, not including my assistant fees is not a whole lot to other people. But to me, who I, you know, the person who doesn't do huge launches, that's a lot of money. So I've put about $6,000 into a series that has only brought in $1,300. And my, my question was like, where did I go wrong? What, what went wrong with this series? And, and, um, <clears throat> and Lindsay, Lindsay has a point here. I'm actually going to have you give your point, but not yet. Okay. That's okay with you. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> I got to prep myself now. I didn't have notes to say something on this. <laughs> anyway, I was like, she's like, do you want feedback? And I was like, not on air unless you give it to me first. So I have time to compose, you know, to like think my way through and be like, okay, I understand. Um, anyway, so um, I followed tropes fairly closely when it came to like the creatures in the story, the the magic system, the fact that magic is... I mean, in my universe, magic is known in the world on earth, but this type of magic, the, like the demons, the, the darker side of magic is not known. And so I followed those kinds of tropes really closely. I followed the trope of the main guy not having money and needing money and having to do jobs that are less wonderful, whatever. Anyway, so the biggest trope that I didn't hit was a strong female lead. Um, and my question on that was how important is that for successful urban fantasy? It's, it's important, but now that I heard, you know, heard Lindsay's feedback, I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's also a very good point. Um, and 
Lindsay, if you want to go ahead and give that right now, because I'm going to talk about Facebook ads in a bit. So go ahead. Ready, set, go. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. I had uh, popped in because I saw your notes. So I went and looked at it more critically than I otherwise would have. And you've kind of got it in fantasy romance. And uh, there's a lot about love. And uh, he's got to assassinate the woman he loves in, in the blurb. And there's a guy on the cover. And it's a male lead. And I'm like, but this is fantasy romance. Uh, and usually it would be a female character on the cover or a naked guy chest. But like something to know, it's, it's usually a heroine with romance and it's usually focused on her or on both of them. You know, a lot of the fan uh, romance blurbs are her pro problem, their problem or his problem and then how they have a problem together and they're going to have to come together. Um, so yeah, that was just it. I thought uh, female readers generally are going to identify more with the female protagonist, especially in uh, romance. So that was just my thing. Um, and I think you might may just want to change the blurb and put in different categories and maybe market it more as tough guy urban fantasy, if that's what it is. Yeah. And I was like, like Lindsay makes a really good point because my goal was, and this is, this is Alex Newton's fault. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding, Alex, if you listen. He was like, urban or fantasy romance was a genre that was doing well and it was, it didn't have a whole lot in it. So I was like, well, this, this character, the series I want to write about, this could potentially be a good, strong fantasy romance. Um, but I neglected to recognize the fact that I don't write romance unless it's the main point of the story. And so, I mean, I've just finished the fifth book or whatever, and there's two books in the series where the chick is only in it for like one scene. And that is not a fantasy romance. And so like when Lindsay gave that feedback, I was like, it's like, I don't, I don't write fantasy romance. And this was my series that I got to learn. I don't write rom fantasy romance. And this, in the series, it doesn't have the romance in it that the genre, I mean, that the blurb says it does. Um, the first book, the first half of the first book does. But so I was like, okay, so I can, I'll just rewrite that blurb and make it more about, um, what the book really is about, which is this tough guy who is, you know, fighting demons and, and trying to conquer the whole world, right? And trying to trying to get the the devil off his back, basically, which is pretty common in tough guy um, urban fantasy. And so, um, yeah, so I was very appreciative of that feedback, and it didn't make me go ha, ah! you know, <laughs> like some feedback where you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> please just rewrite the whole series, Andrea. <laughs> That's not what you want to hear. Now that I forked over like twenty five hundred dollars for the first book in audio, <laughs> let's just rewrite the whole thing. Anyway, so. Um, I've been working on a description today. I, I'll test that out. Um, but in the meantime, over the last week or so, I've been in an attempt to see if I could get that series to sell, the first book to sell. Um, I ran a bunch of tests on Facebook ads. And the first set of ads was on, was basically a test on descriptions. I, I have two descriptions that I wrote for it from the very beginning. One was in first person and one was in third person. And I had those running at the same time. They performed equally well, 21 cents per click, same number of clicks, same number of downloads, same number of impressions, same number of days running, et cetera. Um, and since they were fairly equal, I decided not to make any changes. Of course, now I'm going to be making changes for sure. <laughs> um, the current test I'm running is to find out which ad I should run long-term. And my goal with this, I always have an ad running to the first in every series, just as a gentle pick-me-up all the time. And so I have three ads currently running, one with reader quotes at it on the beginning of it. Um, and there's like, you know, you've got the little five gold stars, you know, I just picked out really, really brief quotes, like, like very compelling. Um, I don't remember what the rest of them are. Anyway, you, for lit readers or sorry, listeners, you guys just go through your five star reviews and pick out really, really brief, short, um, 
happy, excited quotes and use that. Um, and then, so that's one with quotes, one with the first three chapters and one with quotes followed by the first three chapters, because the biggest thing that I've recognized with this series is that if I can get people reading, if they start that first paragraph, they keep reading. Um, and so, uh, the one with quotes and sample chapters, chapters is doing is okay. So the one with quotes actually is doing the worst. It's at 25 cents per click. Um, I think that's actually dropped down to 20 cents per click. Uh, the one with quotes and sample chapters is doing the next worst, and that's at about 18 cents per click. And then the one that starts right at the beginning of the book without anything else is at about 10 cents per click right now. Um, and the audience I'm targeting is the one I usually target. So urban fantasy readers, male and female, age 35 plus. It's about 727,000. 720,000. I don't know numbers. I can't read. 720000 big. <laughs> um, I don't know yet which ad is going to give me the best results where downloads are concerned. I They're all giving me downloads currently, which I like, but um, it's too soon to tell. So it might not end up being that the cheapest ad is the one I use because if they don't go and download after clicking, then it doesn't make a difference. Um, and then of course, once I rewrite the description, that's going to make a difference as well. Um, Anyway, so if I can't get this series to sell, I'm going to see what I can do to tie it off with just one more book. Um, Nolan and I were discussing the possibility of putting it on the back burner for a little while uh, so it can weather a bit, gain more reviews, and just be out uh, while I focus on building my newsletter list still and brainstorm and research for my next series. Um, I don't know how, how happy I can be doing that because I've never done that before. I usually... I don't have the ability to jump from series to series very well. It just it makes it too hard for me to come back. And so... I don't know. We'll see what I do. Um, but one last point before I hand things off to Joe. Um, I'm, and I was just telling Lindsay and Joe this before we start recording. I'm at the point now where I need books to sell almost more than anything else. I've written all, almost all my passion projects. I've got tons of ideas for future books, but honestly, they're all weighed equally in my mind. And if I can't get something to sell, and if I know ahead of time it's not going to sell, I just, I don't have the time to write those kinds of books because, um, yeah, like I, you know, raising kids, homeschooling and all of that. I just, it's, I would rather write something that's going to sell. And so Midnight Chronicles is a passion project. Uh, but sometimes passion projects are like the worst thing we can do where royalties are concerned. And when you're in, when you're first starting out those passion projects, you got to get them out. Like you can't not write them. But when you're like where I am, or, you know, authors who have, you know, like lots of titles, you, you got to do what's best for the business as well as what's best for you. And if I can be passionate about other projects as well, that that will sell, that's what I'm going to focus my time on anyway. And I'll keep everybody updated as I go along. All right. Well, that's definitely like a laudable goal. <laughs> like that's, that's something if you can develop the aptitude to like identify the thing that will sell well that you're also interested in writing. That's basically the entire point of like, that's all of the, the advice we ever give on this show. So good luck to you. I hope you, you do good. If I crack it, I'll let everyone know. Excellent. <laughs> and, and then that genre will get ruined. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as for me, I don't have a whole lot. Uh, I've been, I've been writing um, uh, big Sigma six and uh, I, after having multiple months of very bad writing, I've been extremely consistent with 3,000 words a day on days that I write. I've also been very consistent on taking days off to do admin stuff because I've been getting almost no admin stuff done on the days that I write. So it's been a bit of a restructure, and it's been working okay. I'm 60,000 words into uh, Big Sigma 6, and I've got a month and a half 
before it needs to get to the editor. So I, I should comfortably reach the end unless it grows out of control, which has happened before. But we'll hope that that doesn't happen. Um, I also said last week that I would have the blurb and pre-order for Free Range 6 finished by the time we aired, which is today, and I don't. Uh, I didn't even try. <laughs> I decided I was just going to focus on writing because I was sort of in a groove. So I'll do that at some point. I'm not going to promise it for next week, though. Uh, I, at this point, the edit's going to be back uh, tomorrow. And traditionally, I haven't done a, uh, a blurb and a pre-order until I've had the fully edited manuscript back. So maybe I'll just do what I've always done as opposed to trying to get ahead of the, the curve. Uh yeah, I mean, that's basically it. Just just soldiering along, getting things done. And uh, hopefully I will have Big Sigma 6 in the hopper. And I was just, before we started recording, I was talking about how I'm sort of planning a, a little bit of time off after Big Sigma 6, uh, assuming that I get it comfortably in under the deadline. I'm probably going to take a week or so to first off decide what I'm going to do next because I don't have my next novel project selected yet. And also... Uh, as is sort of evidenced by the, my surroundings, which I've been commented on, um, I have been letting a lot of other uh, life-related things slide as I've been getting my, my, my books back in order. So I'm going to try to take some time to deal with that. And like the blurb and the pre-order, I will probably fail at doing those things. But, you know, I mean well. So that's the news I got for this week. Time off. That's a novel idea. And as I was telling Joe before we started recording, I've been like working like crazy to get, uh, I just finished my Star Kingdom book eight edits. I'm about to send it off to my beta reader. It ended up at 148,000 words and pretty big story tying everything up. This is the end of the series. Um, and I was like, I can take time off now. Then I was like, no, I promised I'd do the, the bonus story to go with that. And I have to do a bonus scene for the other series and then get rolling on the next urban fantasy. I will take some days off in there. It's, it's not my strength, but the COVID times, man, has got me like, well, what would I do? I'm just going to hang out and read, I guess, for a couple of days. But in the past, I've done more road trips and stuff uh, for vacations and hiking trips. But uh Yep, that's uh, probably not going to do that quite right now. Um, one thing I wanted to share with you guys before we jump into a checklist. Oh, I should mention too that um, Andrew was talking about you kind of have to, especially when you depend on this income, you have to pick and choose a little bit. Um, like just because you don't write to market doesn't mean you're not going to think of the business side. And that's certainly been my case the last few years. Uh, sometimes I pick things that I know might not make as much money, but I, I just want to write like a new sci-fi story. Uh, so, but I, this year I was kind of like, well, I have the idea for a new sci-fi series in 2021. So maybe I'll do that. And I think I even talked about it on the show, sci-fi next year. But then I was thinking, well, you know, my epic fantasy, high fantasy kind of stuff actually makes more <laughs> and more reliably has in the past. So could I take the same ideas I have for the sci-fi and put them in the epic fantasy framework? Because um, space opera and epic fantasy are actually kind of can, can have some similarities. So um, at first I thought, nah, I don't want to do that. But I don't know about you guys, but sometimes you just kind of get some idea in your head and think about it. And maybe listen to some podcasts that I was listening to. David Farland, uh, he's got, the, I think I'd mentioned him last time, The Million Dollar Outline and then just some books on uh, for writers. And I listened to a couple of interviews with him and I just started thinking, yeah, yeah. I, okay, now I'm getting more excited about writing this kind of bigger story, kind of epic fantasy story. So, um, so that's my plan. So I do the same thing, Andrea, to kind of decide, hmm. And if I am going to do a passion thing, it's usually like a one novel. Like I have one a sci-fi 
semi kind of romance with an autistic captain heroine. I was like, this is not going to sell. I'll do one novel. One novel is okay. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily do a whole series on something that I thought was going to be a little harder to market. All right. And uh, just FYI, for those who uh, wrote in and said they want to hear more of Joe and that Andrea and I same, sound the same and do all the talking, he's going to be headlining next week's show on Patreon. So look forward to that. But um, Joe, actually, do you want to start us off today and talking a little bit before we get into our checklist, which may be applicable to all who are planning the series? Um, do you want to talk about kind of the road to six figures, what it was like for you? And then um, if Andrea wants to talk after that, and then I will come up with something to say, possibly intelligent, possibly not. Okie dokie. Um, I've told this story a couple of times and I'll, I'll start by saying that whenever anybody asks me for advice, just like in real life, like when I'm at, at, a, at a conference or a convention, I always preface it by saying, I can't tell you what to do. I can only tell you what I did and what I think should be done because um, there's just, everything is so incredibly situational as will be seen. The short version of my road to six figures was as follows. I started publishing in 2010, which is right on the very early, earliest part of the Kindle wave. I think the Kindle was released in 2009 or 2008. Um, so my first book, The Book of Deacon, was released uh, without a professional edit and with a bad ho homemade cover. And it sold uh, $19 worth in the first year. And uh, I probably would have given up on that, except that I had actually written the first three books already. So I was at least going to publish the next two. Once all three of them were out, and I, I had resigned to the fact that writing was just going to be a hobby, I made the first book free. Uh, as I mentioned before the show started, Brian S. Pratt, I believe, is the person who I had first read about doing that, and I decided to follow suit. And then by the end of that month, I had made about $2,000, and I reinvested the first $3,000 I made in new covers, and I had reinvested after that uh, in better editing. And uh, I started my path towards six figures then. Uh, by the end of that year, I was in five figures. And by the end of the following year, I, w I just missed six figures. Like It technically was a six-figure year if you started counting from like three days later. Because my book release uh, was on January. So I lost by the end of January. So I only had 11 months sort of sliding window. Uh, and I kept it six figures for a couple of years, three or four years of six figures, and then another couple of years of very nearly six figures, like high, high, high 90,000 from the books. And uh, mostly the momentum came from writing in a couple of different series. Um, I, I would have a, I had a relatively active Facebook presence and I had a newsletter and that was it in terms of how I was keeping sales going. I didn't really run ads. Uh, I, I had some really good luck early on with getting featured on BookBub. So like that was my only paid advertising besides boosted, boosted posts for new releases uh, for most of the time that I was in six figures. Things slowed down for me recently, hence the restructuring I was talking about. But generally speaking, my path to six figures was a matter of good timing and having uh, reasonably long books out in two different, uh, three different series. And so that I always had sort of a strong series going, pushing at least two books in the back list. And that's my story. And you're sticking to it. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it's so crazy because like, 
um, my story in comparison is just, you know, it was mainly a story of me being in the wrong place in the wrong time. <laughs> so like wrong genre at the wrong time. I mean, I hopped on the very beginning of 2011 and with a middle grade fantasy series, epic fantasy series that just, it's, I mean, it did not do super well. I mean, it did okay, but it did honestly better. The eBooks were doing better than all of the contemporary traditionally published books at that time. And I was only making like 500 a month on it. So that just shows how bad eBooks were doing for middle grade back then. Um, anyway, so my story is basically climbing the way, my way to the top. Um, I wrote my middle grade fantasies, a couple of romances and a bunch of short stories and novellas before I decided to focus more on advertising and reader feedback. So I put a lot of conscious effort into my mosaic chronicles and I took care to follow reader expectations better where like length and tropes and genre were concerned. I still didn't completely understand what tropes were. And back then tropes were like bad. Like everybody's like, don't write tropes, don't write cliches. You got to be completely original. That was like really bad feedback and really bad advice because I mean, I wanted to write my exciting little happy passion projects, but I also wanted to make money and readers just expect things. I think a lot of us know that. Um, anyway, so my Mosaic Chronicles is still not written to market. It's too much of a mix of fantasy subgenres uh, for that. Um, and things didn't exactly explode, but little by little, my, my royalties inched their way up with every release in that series. Um, the thing that pushed me over into six figures was a BookBub promotion, which unfortunately isn't something that can be easily replicated. Um, but other aspects of what I did can. So... I tested things out with different promotional websites. I ran Facebook ads and to like figure out if my covers were working, my descriptions were working, my titles, even my series names. Uh, I focused on building my newsletter list and learning marketing. Um, that first book, book promotion, I think I had like 10,000 people subscribed to my newsletter list after that. And so, I mean, that kept things going. Um, and then yeah, just making sure that I truly understood marketing. Um, and of course, you can't ever really understand marketing because once you do, it changes. But the past year and a half has been difficult for me where royalties are concerned. And not surprisingly, my baby is like a year and a half old. <laughs> so it, we can blame it all on him. Uh, he's not, he's almost not a baby anymore. He can't talk yet. So, but anyway, um, as I've said in the past, uh, it doesn't matter. I'm determined to keep writing since it's how I stay happiest and success will follow once I get things moving again. All right. For myself, I think we all here started a while back. I, I published my first novel, The Emperor's Edge, at, right before Christmas 2010, which is, of course, the best time I'm sure to launch a book. But I didn't have any followers, so it didn't matter. Anybody, nobody bought it. I mean, maybe I sold a couple here and there. I remember trying Goodreads had pay-per-click ads you could buy, and I tried that, and they worked horribly. But I sold a couple books that way. I was selling it at 2.99, and I had a second book, but not in the same series because uh, when I was looking at agents and what they wanted, they were like, "Well, don't bother writing a series." until you know somebody's going to get the first one. So they were unrelated, but I published that. And uh, very few sales in the beginning. Uh, there were not really cover designers back then, uh, you know, working for Indies. You had to go hunting around and deviant art. And so I basically had horrible covers <laughs> until like, mm, probably Balance on the Blade's Edge. 2013, I think I published that. It was probably my first, like, really, I thought it was a pretty good cover. And it actually, uh, it was my first time sticking on Amazon and, like, the top, I mean, not way at the top, but, like, around 1,500 overall in the store. And I remember being, wow, 
this is doing really good because <laughs> I never had that experience with my first series. But the reason I'm telling you about it is because I did get to over making a uh, hundred thousand a year with that first series. Um, and it was very much, you know, just kind of clawing along, trying to get sales. I think uh, everybody talks about the Kindle gold rush for a bit. You had to have the good covers. You had to really accidentally or just be talented and, and know. And it was a learning experience for me and I'm not a design person. And I didn't really get that, like I remember when Joe's covers were out, his Book of Deacon first cover, his always be higher than my Emperor's Edge in the uh, like top 100 free. Because <laughs> I had these weird yellow covers that uh, everybody, somebody was like, I think they're books about historical India, right? I was like, okay, I don't know. Because I, I did have a cover designer by that eventually, but he didn't really know either uh, about, you know, booking covers to market, I guess you would call it. So it was very much, uh, the first thing I did that started selling books was write, I had a short story that I had originally written for an anthology that didn't get accepted, but it had the same heroine, heroine as from the series. And um, they had some fun banter. It was a complete story. I thought this would be pretty good. Maybe I can get people into it. And I didn't know how to make it free on Amazon at the time, but I knew that if I made it free on Smashwords and distributed it to Barnes and Noble, that it would be free there. So I actually, my first sales really came from Barnes and Noble because I put that out there. I had a better cover on that one. I had artist draw the main character never mind that she was almost naked kneeling on the ice uh, the uh, artist was not from america and we had a, some language problems in the communications i was not i did not have a lot of money starting out guys i remember i paid 200 dollars for my first edit and it was like horrible the guy was a teacher i don't know where he was teaching but uh anyway i couldn't use it and so i had all the problems starting out of not having much money to spend too so anyway but that free that short story making it free and i put a little excerpt of the book in the back of it made the short story free and this is what i still tell people to do this this is what you know it still works uh and i put having the free story just up on the the sites instead of like trying to do some i mean there weren't these services where you could put it up and people had to give your email address in order to get the short story i just put it out free where people were and later when i figured out how to make it price match on amazon i eventually by the time i put my third book in my emperor's edge series i was able to make the first one free there and that certainly helped get the momentum going i went from like a couple hundred dollars a month uh, which i was getting basically because of that short story uh to a couple thousand dollars a month and that's when i was like okay i, I see the potential here this series could possibly get me you know, uh, to replace my day job income eventually. I did have a mailing list early on. I had come from kind of blogging and internet marketing a little bit, which you think would have given me uh, tips on publishing and online marketing, but it was really kind of a different type of marketing. Um, but so I had a mailing list, got that early on. And I, but I, for the whole, for many, many years, I just said, hey, if you want to know when I have new books out, you could sign up for my mailing list and that was it. And you know, I think I got to like 7,000 subscribers over time that way. Um, but it worked much better later on when I started, here's the free prequel novella that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, that helped much more to build a list faster. Um, but it was about the fifth book in that series. It was really just gradually, I wasn't you know, publishing as quickly back then. I didn't write as quickly. I think I might've gotten three novels out a year, those first three or four years. And I, I started, a, I did a series of novellas on the side just so I could have something else to like release in between, you know, because it was about six months, five, six months between books. Um, but by the time I got to the fifth one, I remember I made over 10,000 that month. And I was like, wow, this is more than I ever made in my day job. This is great. If I could just keep this up, this would be great. And 
by the time I put the sixth and seventh books out in that series, uh, they were supposed to be one book, but I broke it up because it was like 230,000 words. So I had two novels to release. And, you know, that I think that got it to like 17,000 that month uh, or a couple months there. And anyway, that led to the first $100,000 year. And I have never fallen below that. It was the, the year after that was 100,000. And I made it up to 200,000 when I started doing the what became, became the Dragon Blood series. And I would say I made it that far without really any huge lucky breaks. It was just sort of being willing to always give away something free. That's why I'm such a proponent of that. And if other people don't have to do it, fine. I had horrible covers. I, I needed something to get people to try the story. I didn't know how to write to market. I was very kind of not steampunk, not epic fantasy, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> we'll call it high fantasy, but that's not a category on Amazon. Uh, so I've always been like willing to give stuff away for free just to get people to try the story. And I just gradually built up the fan base that way. And fortunately, people were really into the story, into the characters especially. I got a lot of fan art with that series, fan fiction. Uh, at one point, somebody even started a forum online. Uh, you know, and then I was worried though when I got to the end of it. Uh, I even wrote one more. Like I, the series was done. I was like, I better write one more because I don't know if anything else I write is going to sell this well. And um, you know, I did. That was a big. You know, it did well. And but none of these books. I, I should say I got to these uh, in this income. I was never like it was very much release a book on Amazon. Everybody goes out and buys it. Get kind of a spike, you know, in the sales ranking, and then it just trickles down and falls down. So it's very much gathering fans one by one and just selling them the books. And I think you can still do that today. I feel like you have to do that today. If you don't have a lot of money to spend on advertising, you have to be just willing to kind of grab a fan at one at a time, you know, little things that you can do. And we'll talk about that a little more coming up. But um, I will say you tend to have, or in my experience, was you have big jumps. Uh, like I went from two, 3,000 a month to 10,000 based on a release. And when I went from like, I went from 100, two years to 200. And then when my Dragon Blood series, when I boxed up that first box set, three made it 99 cents. I, you know, that really took off. That was the first thing I'd ever had stick in like the two, top 200 on Amazon and stuck there for a long time. And that year I made 700,000. And then after that, I did the next series in Kindle Unlimited and I made more. <laughs> so that's why I'm still launching things in Kindle Unlimited today. And I've managed to stay up at that level. So I'm pleased. I'm always expecting the worst. I think I've talked about being glass half empty on this podcast. So I don't buy anything. I don't like take on any debt or anything. I'm just like, nope, buy a house when I can afford it. Um, so that's been my attitude. And I still believe, and we're going to talk about this, that ads are great. You don't need them. You can, or you, small sponsorship kind of sites can actually start to get to a fan base, especially if you're willing to do the free thing. It, if you have a story that people are into, that's kind of the thing that we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that too. Do you guys have any comments before? I guess uh, we had a few general thoughts on what it takes. Do you want me to just jump into that, guys? Yes, maybe nodding. So I've mentioned this before, so I won't go into it too deeply, but as far as like how many books you have to be selling, uh, Alex Newton has a chart in Kalytics where he shows like what sales ranking and what price it takes for a book to make over a hundred thousand or two books or three books. And, you know, he's got a bunch of them. And for one book at 99 cents, you'd have to be in the top 50 in the Amazon store for the entire year to make 118,000. Uh, for book at 
for one book at two ninety nine, you'd have to be in the top five hundred all year to make one hundred and twenty nine thousand. And realistically, it's probably going to take a series selling quite you know pretty well, or uh, an, um, you know a new series and a backlist. I in any given year, my backlist is at least half of my income. So um, I'm going to ignore using my uh, urban fantasy or sci-fi series as an example because I'm spending money on Amazon ads for those, and I know not everybody's going to have the money to go throw that throw money at that right now, especially if you're starting out or not making a lot yet. But I, I talked about last time that my old my Dragon Blood series that is basically been wrapped up for five years, except for one random extra book I did in 2018. And I mentioned that that should make about a hundred thousand this year. Uh, and the only advertising I've done this year has been like a $200 boosted Facebook post where I promoted all of my free series starters. Uh, and I do have the three, the three book boxed set for free in that series. So the income is coming from the other five books basically. And you know, in the, I'm not saying like I never advertised this series, but it's never been a lot. It's just been, it's always been wide. I never did AMS ads or Facebook ads on it is more other than the boosted post. It's more doing like free booksy, uh, e-reader news today. It has had book bubs over the years and, and it's done well with it. You know, I do all these things for all my series. Some of them perform better than others. Uh, this one's kind of been my star. Um, but I've done like multi-author box sets with the book one. So I've done a lot of things, but you know, this is a series that in seven years, it's been about $10,000 spent lifetime on sponsored posts basically. And the covers were about $200 each on these. So I look at what I'm spending now <laughs> on covers for my urban fantasy. And it's like my best selling series was actually just Photoshop manipulation stuff. But, um, as far as what it takes, like the books are just ranking around twenty, thirty thousand overall on Amazon right now. They're not in KU. They're three ninety nine or four ninety nine for the later ones that are longer. The first three are free. They do sell also on the other stores, so that's some of the income. But I just wanted to get out of your head, hopefully, that you need to be like in the top five hundred in Amazon to be really successful as an author. If you see people that are up there and they're up there for a while, they're probably making multi six figures, uh, and there are certainly authors making seven figures out there even after expenses. So it is possible. All right, <laughs> Joe, why don't you talk for a little bit? I will have a drink. Sure. Um, I'm going to say that, uh, like, uh, I have never been a rapid releaser. I've actually, one of my six-figure years didn't have a book release in it. Uh, I, I had an entire gap, a one-year gap in my release uh, process. Uh, and mostly my success during the time that I was making my most money came from a very strong sell-through on series, uh, uh, three series, each that had a free series starter. So the Book of Deacon stuck in, the, the, the book one of the Book of Deacon stuck in the top 100 free books for a long time. I was really impressed. And part of that was because I had gotten multiple book bubs over the years with it. And part of it was because I was an early book that had a decent cover uh, and therefore ended up getting thousands of, of reviews once it went free. Um, Plus, I was probably in the top 20 fantasy free books even longer than I was in the, the top 100 free books overall. Um, and back then, free and paid were side by side. Like the, the, top one, the top 20 paid books and the top 20 free books in a genre were side by side. So I was like right up there next to the Game of Thrones just because of how the layout was. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Um, so that got me a tremendous amount of traffic to book one, which kept books two and three close to each other in the ranks. Uh, and I kept each series afloat with about one new entry per year 
and about two book bub features somewhere on my other uh, uh, series per per year. So again, I had a lot of luck with book bub. Um, through all that time, I was wide. I've never, I have only one series that has been um, Kindle Unlimited, and it's honestly, series-wise, probably my worst performer, but we've been through that. Uh, I had some particularly good runs on, on Barnes & Noble and on Apple. At any given time, I usually had about one series being buoyed by a recent release, and I, like I said, another one being uh, held up by a book bub. Uh, but all this is saying, like, I probably... Most of my money has been made on books that were between five and ten thousand in the ranks on Amazon. Uh, uh, if you have a couple of books between five and ten thousand, you're making a good living. Uh, at least back when I was keeping track of that sort of thing. Uh, I I really never shot for a big release. Uh, even when I was like even again even after a year of not having a book out, I didn't really focus on gigantic launches. Uh, I just tried to make sure there was traffic going to my early books. And also, through most of the time I was making my most money, my books were sort of underpriced. Uh, 150,000 words, uh, I was charging three uh, two ninety nine, like the minimum you can get full royalty for. Um, a lot of the keys to my early success uh, are pretty tightly linked to watching, again, catching the Kindle wave early, but most of my long-term earnings came from just keeping momentum up with periodic promos and just you know, a strong read through. My kids are like running around in the background. So I'm like, okay, guys, you're going to be quiet while I'm talking here. <laughs> um, okay. So I used to always say that people who didn't give up eventually would find success. And that's mostly still true, but I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know that I totally agree with that or believe that anymore. So because people who never give up and consistently do the wrong things won't most likely won't ever be successful. Or if they do, it'll be very short lived, like a couple of months, you know, which is kind of like what Lindsay's saying. If you're like putting 90% of your, at your royalties into ads, that's not going to last very long. Um, and if you're doing things not right, or if you're, you know, pushing the boulder uphill, it's, it's just not going to last for very long. Um, and wrong things, I'm like when I'm talking about wrong things, I don't know, like publishing poetry. Um, and that's not wrong if you're, if you love poetry, but if you want to make a hundred thousand a year, it is wrong. <laughs> um, what are other things that could be wrong? I, I should have actually put this into the, into the list before I started talking. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. No spoilers for the checklist. Hey, we're going to get to that. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Anyway, okay, so the most important thing is to work smart and hard. You can't become successful if you're not willing to put in hard work, um, but you also can't become successful if you're not willing to put in smart work. And so that was something my dad always told us, you got to work smarter, not harder. Well, you have to do both. Um, the vast majority of authors need to learn how to market. I definitely did. My books alone weren't bringing in serious money. I had to learn to be smart about marketing. So building my newsletter list and understanding how to help readers, you know, recognize um, that you know, that I, that like, I, I'm a person and I am, I like that, that interaction. It's really hard now because I don't have the time anymore. But in the beginning, I really focused on building relationships and I have some very dedicated readers because of that. And so that really, really helped. Um, anyway, so I'm lucky in that I love this aspect of being an author, you know, marketing and all that, but I didn't always, I had to learn what made it tick. And once I had a taste for what good marketing felt like, I got a bug that hasn't left since. Um, and so, I mean, if you're marketing, marketing, marketing and never seeing results, that's really discouraging. And I can understand why people just don't want to market ever again. Um, 
Anyway, so the biggest thing I tell clients is not to plan their lives around one specific tactic, especially if it's something they can't control, like book club features. Um, and, but I tell them to teach themselves several ways to bring in money. So writing in good genres, um, advertising on, on at least one of the good spots. So like, you know, master Facebook ads or master Amazon ads or master BookBub ads just to keep things running to your book. And it doesn't need to be big. Like my ads are only $5 a day, except ones at $7 a day. Um, running regular promotions with websites, um, things like that. Those are good ways, especially in between releases to, to become successful and to keep your books up in the ranks. All right. Well, let's jump into our checklist. So yeah, people have had to listen to us talk for 45 minutes. Like we just want the checklist. Come on. Uh, so hopefully this will be useful. Um, I'm going to start with the uh, quote, which I don't know who said this. I think Einstein gets attributed to it, but uh, it's just the insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. So if what you're doing is not working, it's time to change things up. If you want to make more money and, you know, some people keep publishing and just want to have their books out there and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm not saying you have to write to market, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about going forward here with our checklist that it's just, it maybe try something else. You know, maybe it's time. Um, but, you know, just kind of a word to on mindset. I keep hearing this over and over again that it's pay to play right now and you don't have a shot if you don't have piles of money to spend on ads. I will agree that it's going to be hard to get into a competitive category's top 100s and stick, especially without ads. But like we were talking about with the numbers, you do not need to do that to have a very solid career. I'm going to make 100,000 on that series this year with books that are in the 20, 30,000 on Amazon and they sell, you know, like 10 copies each on the other sites, uh, each book. Uh, maybe 20, if, you know, on a good day. Um, but just realize that all ads do is get you some visibility on your first book. And, and that's only part of the battle. At the most, they get you a sale on book one. No amount of advertising is going to get people to buy the rest of your series if they don't like book one. So if you see someone in your category and they're killing it, um, you know, with book one and you see the ads all over the place, you're like, yeah, that's why they're doing well. But you also see that their books two, three, four, and five, et cetera, are also right ranking in the top 100, I promise they're doing a lot more than just having money to throw at ads. Um, Joe, did you want to jump in before I move on? <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to say that I agree. Uh, ads get strangers to buy your books, but your books make those strangers into fans and the fans are what give you a career. It's nearly impossible to buy your way to success. The return on investment on a single book with crazy amounts of ads is super hard to manage. So most people making a go at it are at least able to capture the interest of the people with the book they are advertising. So yeah, it's it's not pay to play. There's got to be skill involved or you're just not going to make it. I want to bold that and quote it. So that was much better than my Einstein quote. Ads get strangers to buy your books, but books make those strangers into fans and your fans give you a career. Joe Lalo doing a quotable quote. That was a really good memory, Lindsay. Did you read that off of something? It's like he put his notes down or something in a document. <laughs> I don't know. I can't even remember what I said. Um, but moving on, I just want to lightly touch on this because you've all heard it a thousand times before, but the cover, the blurb, and your first 20 pages, you know, the sample pages, if the writing isn't clean and engaging, if the character isn't immediately someone you want to read about, if the cover doesn't immediately tell your target audience that this book is for them, you know, it's an uphill battle. And that's why I, I really relied on my story with my first series because my covers were like a historical India, apparently, is what they were telling the readers the books would be. So it's almost 
better if you had to claw your way up because you had sucky covers. It's like and you had to rely on the story was the only thing. And then the marketing gets easier when you figure that part out. Um, but now there's so many resources out. Like we didn't have podcasts when, when we got started. I think Joanna had the creative pen, but I don't think she was talking about like, guys, these are the covers you need to do to rock sales in your category. So, um, Joe, did you want to mention your thoughts on covers? Do you actually did covers, right? I told you guys, I was always so envious of him up there in that top 100 above me with his awesome covers. My, yeah, but I didn't start with awesome covers. Like I said, like I said uh, uh, earlier in the show, uh, my first covers were homemade and terrible. I, I think I have a post on my website showing what my original covers looked like. And I'll just say that when I changed to the covers that are currently on my books, my sales tripled. And that was like during the time that my sales were starting to pick up. Like I made, I made $3,000, I put new covers on and then my sales tripled. (laughs) So covers make a huge difference to the point where also worth saying my blurbs for those first books are very much summaries, which are not great blurbs. Uh, So the covers basically were doing all of the heavy lifting in terms of getting eyes on, you know, getting people to, to pick up my books. All right. So the next thing on my list here is is your book or series, is it too niche? Um, you don't have to write to market, but if you're writing genre fiction and you want it to sell, it has to have some commercial appeal. Sometimes a small niche can work if it's underserved and there's a hungry audience. Um, like I stumbled across someone I'm doing really well a couple years ago with gay high fantasy romance. Um, but sometimes a niche is small for a reason because there's not really an audience. There's not many people that really want that. One of my poorest performing pen name titles was a time travel futuristic dystopian romance. I think you would call it cli-fi, climate uh, destruction fiction. It's like a thing in sci-fi, but not with romance, <laughs> not not with time travel. Uh, and it was, you know, it actually had a really cool cover. I did like uh, a contest, you know, to get the cover, but it, it still didn't really sell beyond my core readers. And the problem was dystopian romance, it's always going to be tough, as I know now, because you've got kind of two opposing audiences that you need to come together. You've got the people who want romance, they want a happily ever after, usually, you know, reading it as escape fiction because the world sucks (laughs) right now, or just because they enjoy those kinds of happily ever after stories. Whereas dystopian future is the people who want like end of the world, man, they want to see how tough they they pretending they're the character, you know, and they're going to be the guy that's saving the world when the zombies come. Uh, So it's it's really, I, I learned from watching the charts when I was doing that one that going back to, if you're going to do time travel, you need to go back to historical periods that are romanticized, that are appealing and exotic. And especially if you're adding the romance, that romance readers, they like their Highlanders, you know, <laughs> like the Vikings, these exotic periods that people want to go to. So if you're in a niche that's really small, maybe it's time to try something, uh, you know, possibly with broader appeal. Go ahead, Joe. Right. Uh, this is the part where I talk about the, the books I've released that really stretch the meaning of the word niche uh, because I wrote a superhero satire and I wrote the Pizza Dragon book, which there's got to be a drinking game at this point for whenever I mention Pizza Dragon. Uh, I'm glad I wrote them, but I had no real expectations of breakaway hits for, for either of those those books. If, a book, if your book isn't doing well and it's not solidly well-known, uh, it's not a solidly well-known market, uh, it maybe do some research into the potential audience. Like you should have done that before you wrote it. If your goal was to be, a, you know, a, a, a big earner. But if you're looking, you feel your book is good, uh, and you don't think it's living up to potential. Look into what potential audience you have. Search around, find some forums and communities. 
for the subgenre. And if you can't find forums and communities for the subgenre, uh, then it probably you're never going to do well with that book because the community, the audience doesn't exist. And I should also say, if you do find the community, don't just show up and say, buy my book, because that's a bad look. It's just you're trying to educate yourself on the audience, not annoy them. My favorite thing as as an admin of you know Facebook groups is when people say, yes, I will not promote my stuff. And the very first thing they'd post is a self-promotion. <laughs> I don't think our listeners are going to have problems with that. Our listeners are pretty smart. They're not, they're not the spammers out there. Um, something to keep in mind is you're writing in a genre that has has a hungry readership in a way. Okay, sorry. Um, and by the way, the reason I wasn't talking earlier is because I didn't put thoughts down. So I didn't want, because like Lindsay's like, hey, Joe, your turn. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want the listeners to be like, why is she skipping Andrea? <laughs> um, but okay, so something like I was saying, something to keep in mind is, are you writing in a genre that has a hungry readership in a way that readers want the stories? Um, so as an example, when I first started out, my f- most successful book was a teen romance. It was a novella and it made like, it was, it made pennies compared to how my author friends did with their phone, la- full length teen romances. So even though it was doing really well compared to my middle grade fantasies and my short stories and things like that, it just wasn't doing as well as it could have. Um, so there are several things that readers are looking for. And I do recommend you download, um, Kalytics reports. So those include length, price, description, cover, et cetera. Um, yeah. And you, you, your goal is to get as close as possible to what readers are expecting, but without, I mean, like Lindsay, like we've all said, you don't have to write to market to be successful. None of us are really absolutely fantastic at writing to market. Joe might be actually, but <laughs> epic fantasy. he's shaking his head. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, I mean, the closer you can get, especially as the market gets more crowded, the better it is. And as long as if you can string in your passion into that, then you'll, things will just be easier for you in the long run. All right. And that kind of leads us into the next thing on the checklist is, and a lot of us do this without realizing it, it's basically not writing a story that meshes with the wants of the audience you think you're writing for. Um, You know, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. If you're doing a romance, you probably want it from the heroine's point of view. Um, Another example is I've seen, you know, I do a lot of sci-fi. I've seen female sci-fi authors start male pen names because sci-fi is kind of dominated by male readers and they want a fair shake. But then, you know, I saw one person do this. They started a male pen name and then they published a a sci-fi story. They kind of focused on the, you know, I just vaguely remember from the blur, but it was like a mom and a son in their relationship. And I was like, man, no no guy is going to pick that up. Um, Not no guy, but you know, most guys are not looking for that. They're looking for the action adventure in in the sci-fi setting. So if you are going to, you know, start a pen name to appeal to the opposite sex, you need to make sure you do the hero or the heroine of the story are also designed to appeal to the opposite sex. Like a guy writing romance needs to put a heroine on page one and promise a love story. A woman writing sci-fi targeting guys needs to put a guy on page one and promise tons of action and adventure. I have written a sci-fi story, an eight book series about a mom looking for her daughter and it did great, but I wrote it as a woman uh, writing for women. You know, I had a romance within the action adventure stuff and I targeted female sci-fi readers with my ads. I certainly got male readers, but only the kind of guys that are cool with reading a story from a woman's point of view. And we've seen, you know, I, I wish I could find the original study that does that, but I've seen, you know, I've just, I see it from my 
gut and I've seen studies in the past, guys are less likely to be willing to read a story with a female protagonist. Um, women will be more likely to try a male protagonist, but it does seem that we just kind of identify more easily with um, whatever we are. <laughs> so do you guys have any thoughts on that before I move on to the next one that I shoved in at the last minute? <laughs> uh, I will say that... Uh, uh... First off, surprisingly, uh, my three most successful series, two of them have female protagonists. Well, one of them is an en ensemble cast. but uh, So you can sell reasonably well, uh, uh, even if you are writing contrary to your gender. But um, you, you definitely need to know what the audience is looking for, because I have not, I routinely made the mistake of looking at a genre and seeing the parts of that genre that are interesting to me, which is a great way to write a book that you're interested in. But you really also need to keep in mind what the audience is interested in since they're the ones who are going to be buying it. So I have missed the genre tropes pretty hard in some of my books. And sometimes it didn't matter. People still like them. And other times they didn't pick it up because I, I just didn't come close enough to what they were expecting. And I hope our listeners are catching a theme here. Like a lot of being successful does not have to do with marketing. You need to be smart where marketing is concerned, but your craft, you know, your story has to be what sells the book. And so if you're, you know, fighting really hard and marketing as hard as you can and nothing is happening and you know, your cover is good, you know, your description's good. Yeah. Anyway. Right. And it's not, we're not saying like you're not writing fantastic stories too. You just maybe not thinking about maybe who the target audience is. Cause you just, especially we all do this with our first book or first series. We just write it what we like. Uh, and it, then later you find out that you're not really that representative of the common person. Something about the very fact that you became a writer means you're probably a little weird. Sorry guys. We're weird. It's true. And some of us are even making those mistakes with the current series they're writing. I'm not going to name names, though. <laughs> well, I made mistakes with my Star Kingdom series. Well, I, I still wouldn't even know how to fix it now. It's very much like Big Bang Theory in space. So it's not your typical Han Solo, you know, Mal Reynolds kind of action hero. The guy is a professor of robotics who has seizures is the main character. So uh, people look at the cover, they're like, oh, cool, military sci-fi, space opera. And then they read the blurb and they're like, hmm sounds a little different than I expected from the cover. And so I don't know, the covers are still pretty good. So I'm keeping them, but you know, so sometimes you look back in retrospect and if it worked good enough, you know, I, the fans that have read that love it, you know, they've really gotten into it. And that's sort of a theme you'll see with me is that if I can get people to read the story, um, I get a lot of people that are really into the characters in the story. I'm still not the best at figuring out ahead of time what is exactly what the market wants. Um, but next uh, point on the list is just being, I'm going to say, if you're writing genre fiction, you don't really, and you want to make money, you don't want to do anything that is too literary or that's kind of out there stylistically. Um, I saw somebody that had been doing this a long time, had several series out, a lot of books, um, but hadn't managed to make much headway. And so I looked up their series and I looked up like three of the book ones in the most in their series. And, you know, covers were good. Blurbs were pretty okay. <laughs> I'm so good at my, with my praise. They were pretty okay, guys. And I, I did the look inside and it's like first person, present tense. Uh, I was just like, oh my gosh. Uh, you guys, I don't know who played like the Oregon Trail. You guys remember that game? Some of you, <laughs> you had the option. You could be like the easy level. I think he was a banker. You could be the 
middle level, it's like the carpenter. You could be the hard level, which is a farmer. And if you were the banker and you had all the money and it was the easiest, your half your party was still going to die from dysentery on the way to the Oregon coast because it was just that's the game. But if you were the the hardest level, all you got was like here's your wagon and a box of bullets for hunting. See you in Oregon. Um, my point with that is that doing something like that, first person present tense in genre fiction, uh, it's like picking the hard level. I would guess that nine out of ten readers are going to download the sample chapters and go like, nope. This is too weird. Um, so even if the story is fantastic, even if it could win awards, it's going to take kind of a special reader to be willing to go with that. So I would, you know, I mean, you're never going to go wrong with third person past tense. Um, some genres, first person past tense is more common. Um, you know, like when I switched up urban fantasy for my series this year, I, was, I usually read in third person. Uh, I, I, you know, I downloaded several books in the top 100 because I, I kind of knew first person is pretty common and I, it verified. I'm like, okay, first person. So I decided, well, I'm going to go with it. It's not my natural thing. And, you know, I found after I wrote a couple chapters, it was fine. And, um, I even, it made me a little more conscious of varying up the sentence a little bit and not having I, I, I all the time. But, uh, my point is just look at the genre you're in, what's in the top 100. There's very few, honestly, uh, genre fiction series where you're going to find the first person's common. There aren't anywhere present tense is going to be common. Don't try second tense or the second person unless you're N.K. Jemison and you're going to win a Hugo with that book. Um, there are very few of those. Uh, so, just be careful with that kind of thing. And I think if you want to experiment on one book, like I said, I've done the one-off books, fine, do, do something weird. Um, but if you really, you're planning to write a whole series, which is a really big investment of time, uh, don't make it harder on yourself, especially like pick your battles. You know, I, I wouldn't mess with the tense that <laughs> in the style, you know, POV limited, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You guys talk now. I have dogs roaming around in the back that are distracting me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, you'd be surprised how often some relatively innocuous style choices will turn out to be a stumbling block for readers. I'm a big fan of having characters who have unique speech patterns and dialects, but I've read some books that really taught me not to do what they did because they have had, like, I, I read a book that had a fully phonetic Cockney or Scottish accent. And there were so many hyphens and apostrophes. It was like reading hieroglyphics. Like it was hard to get through dialogue. And it's like a central character with important information about the story. And I had to really sit there and decipher what they were saying. And it was, it made it difficult to get through. And I've also had books, uh, where the bulk of the sentences really, really stretched the line between standard and run on sentence. Like they went out of their way to put together a sentence that you would have to spend two minutes diagramming and, uh, just, carrying that much information in your head as a reader before you finally get to the, you know, to the verb of the sentence, it's just more work than the average reader might want to do. So like make your, I'm not saying you need to write dumb. You absolutely don't need to do that. But if you were writing like incredibly purple prose that is super, you're reaching deep into the source for every line, you're going to fatigue a lot of readers. Uh, some people will love it, but a lot of people will sort of be like, um, this is not how I wanted to spend my downtime is looking up every third word. So yeah, you absolutely want to make the reading experience as easy and, and comfortable as possible. And if you have characters who have accents, um, just things here and there to remind readers that they have an accent. It doesn't have to, I mean, I don't know, Hagrid and Harry Potter. I had the hardest time reading it and I have seen people do worse accents than that. So like what he, like what Joe was saying. So if you do have characters who have strong accents, just throw in reminders here and there 
Um, and that's, you know, fine. Um, and then just a quick note about, about, um, first person, first tense. Um, like that is, I mean, dystopian, you know, Hunger Games, Divergent are both in first person, first tense, but those authors have a team of tense. First person, what did I say? <laughs> first tense. I was like, readers are going to be like, wait, what is that? <laughs> first tense, present author. <laughs> um, anyway, so, I mean, they have a huge team of editors behind them. And I mean, it, there's other books that are in dystopian, you know, YA dystopian, like the selection is in, in third person past tense. So not every book in dystopian is in first person, first tense. And I'm going to say for those of us who can only afford one editor or maybe two editors, but can't afford a whole team of editors, first person present tense is really hard to pull off in such a way that it doesn't feel like you're jabbing yourself in the eye with a pencil. (laughs) So dystopian is an exception, but even not every dystopian book is in that. Um, uh, Lindsay, did you want to add something there? I was just going to say that you do see that more often in YA stuff, yeah. but mostly traditional published. And yeah. they have different marketing arms and ways to get books out and build the buzz than we do. So uh, just keep that in mind. Yeah. And they also have, like I was saying, they have editors, you know, lots of them in some cases. Sometimes they don't at all. But anyway, it's just, it's again, fighting uphill. Um, and so another thing to watch out for is Yoda-esque writing. Um, people prefer straightforward over elaborate backward sentences. And Joe is kind of um, talking about that. Um, I still find books that are so convoluted, they're difficult to read. So like they'll say, with her best friend, Danielle, Rachel loved eating pizza instead of Rachel loved eating pizza with her best friend, Danielle. If you're focusing too much on delivery, instead of on telling a good story in a straightforward and natural way, you're going to lose readers. All right. Excellent point. Me, you eating pizza now. We're good. Making me hungry. Um, Next on the list is mining reviews for clues. Uh, We authors are often sensitive souls, and I'll be the first to say I don't look at my own reviews anymore, but I did in the past early on, and there can be hints in there. Sometimes your star average can be okay, and people will give you four or five stars, but if you're kind of skimming through them and you see a lot that are like, it took me a while to get into this, but then it was really good or slow start, but I'm glad I stuck with it as realize again, that for every reader who will stick with something, 10 won't, and they just didn't leave a review. So you don't even realize, um, that would, I would, that's something I've been working on in my writing career is getting better at the pacing. Uh, you know, epic fantasy fans are a little more tolerant of the very slowly unwinding stories. But like when I did the urban fantasy, I was very conscious of like, not doing scenes or, or chapters more than two or like 3,000 words are like, ooh, this is getting too long. So pacing is something that a lot of the authors that you see that you think their stuff is junk and you're like, man, they have like no skills at writing. Why is that a bestseller? And my beautiful story is not. Usually they're pretty good at the pacing and just really getting uh, readers sucked into the story and turning the pages. Um, is it my turn now? <laughs> Sorry. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I'm really glad that Lindsay brought up, um, reviews because I'm, I don't know, I'm tired of hearing authors tell others never to read their reviews. Yes, it can be demoralizing. Yes, it can crush your soul and shred your heart <laughs> and make you not want to write a book again for a very long time. But it is one of the best ways to learn how to be a stronger writer and to understand what readers are thinking. Uh, and that's kind of funny. Readers, um, reading re- readers thought is a great way to understand what readers thought. <laughs> so like Lindsay said, watch for patterns. Um, I recently read through a bunch of my five-star reviews to see what, like what positive things people were saying about my midnight chronicles for use in Facebook ads. 
Um, and I learned that this series isn't, isn't like my others. It's compelling, intense, engaging, and heartrending. I knew it was heavier on emotions, but it strikes a different chord than my books usually do. And so for this reason, finding a different readership is necessary for this book's success. Um, reviews can totally help you learn if you're missing the target or if you've hit a completely different target than except, expected. And I don't, I mean, I don't usually tell my, my authors, my clients to read their reviews unless I feel like they need to, you know, I don't know. You do, you see patterns even in one star reviews. And like what Lindsay was saying, you can get a four star review and they're going to say something negative about the book in that four star review. And if you notice patterns, you know, I don't know, like have one day where you just read your views and you write down your thoughts, your impressions from those reviews, have some pizza and um, whatever you need to, you know, hot chocolate and then just sleep on it. And then the next day or the next week or whatever, pull up your big girl panties and <laughs> do some work you need to do to uh, make, write a book that readers want to read. FYI, I recommend drinking wine while you read your reviews, not hot chocolate. Oh, come on. Hot chocolate, my favorite beverage. <laughs> Strawberry milk too. All <laughs> right. Just fine. a couple couple more things on our list here. The other thing I would suggest is we usually st suggest sticking to one genre because it's easier to build up an audience if you keep writing more of what they want. Um, but that's kind of assuming you're actually making some headway in that genre. If you're not, maybe it's time to try something else. Like if you're really struggling to get your steam punk romance off the ground, but you also happen to be a big fan of romantic comedy, maybe go try a series of that. I've actually seen quite a few people who struggled to sell as much as they wanted, despite good reviews, despite solid stories. Um, they were just kind of in a small niche, and they really broke out big time when they jumped into something bigger that has larger potential audience. Like, if you're a good writer, um, you can make it in a bigger genre, especially taking all you've learned about marketing from those first series or couple series. Uh, you know, that's why a lot of people start paying names so you know give it a shot if, if you're not getting the kind of success you want in the one you're working on and you can also go from like like a, a overcrowded genre into a less crowded genre you know and that's again you know we really need to get some money from alex <laughs> that's where kalytics go come in handy seriously his reports are very very beneficial um, but this is exactly what I'm doing right now. So I'm super passionate about contemporary fantasy, urban especially, but I don't have the ability to write fast enough for the urban fantasy market. So I'm looking into moving back to epic fantasy or another subgenre of fantasy or even just moving completely to romance. Um, we all have favorite genres, but being married to one and not being willing to try something else if our favorite isn't working isn't a smart business plan unless you're playing the really long game. Like, I'm going to be successful in 20 years or something. <laughs> um, keep in mind that just one book in a new genre won't be enough to see if it's a good place for you. Um, you'll need to try out a few books before deciding if it'll be good. Also do your research before switching. So like I said earlier, moving into a hugely crowded genre sometimes isn't the best bet. All right, last thing on the list, as we've been talking for over an hour, what's new, guys? <laughs> um, time and consistency. And I know this isn't romantic or sexy, but uh, some of this is kind of like compounding interest. Uh, over time, if you keep publishing new work, keep promoting like the book one or the older series, and people keep finding it and becoming fans who will buy everything you write, you get to the point where you can have good launches and you know a series isn't going to bomb, even if it isn't anywhere close to what the mass market wants. But it's just, it's, you know, we all want 
today. We want that first series to kill it and to be in the top 100 of our category on Amazon. And, um, you know, like we kind of talked about in the beginning, uh, especially with me, I was very slowly and gradually just kind of finding more people, bringing them into my book one uh, and getting to the point where a new release sold, you know, I don't know how many they sold back then. I didn't look. 10,000 copies, let's say, <laughs> at four ninety nine. Um, but and that's kind of what allowed me to get this solid income is just always having, writing more stuff. I do write quickly now. I did not write as quickly in the beginning. You don't, I, I did not find that I had to write a book a month to get to six figures. You know, like I said, I had two, I think I had three uh, novels this first three or four years. Uh, that was after the first one took seven years to finish. But um, gradually over time, you keep writing. And before you know it, you've got 50 books in your back catalog. And as I said, a lot of my income today comes from the backlist. So it's just, and it's a lot easier to, all you do with the backlist stuff every now and then, run a free book seat. You know, I try for the book club. Some, sometimes I get them on the wide stuff, you know, like never on the stuff that's in KU. But, you know, you just keep trying every time, every month. And you can have decent promos uh, even without the, the book clubs. You can, you know, get some new readers in. And just uh, every time you run one and get a thousand downloads, maybe two of those people become super fans by everything. And if some one person comes in and buys everything when you have 50 books, that's a big paycheck. That was worth it. That way, way more. One person paid for the free book seat, you know? So uh, time and doing it consistency, like you don't have to do it every month, but um, there's a lot of power in putting a book out every quarter or two a year. I just, and every January and August, you know, there's a new book from this author and your readers will uh, get to know that and get to expect it and be ready to uh, open their wallets to buy it. All right. You guys can finish up. And I think then we'll, we'll just save our listener questions for a shorter show. Maybe the Patreon next one, one next week. Uh, all right. Yeah. I'll say that uh, particularly consistency uh, is under underrated in terms of how much it can contribute to your success. If you look at every major like social media or, or like uh, YouTube, uh, consistency can be profoundly important. Uh, as a consumer, I like when I can rely, rely, reliably get the media I'm expecting at the time I'm expecting it. I don't care if it's once a month or once a year or once a week when I'm like, oh, that's right, it's time for, and then it's there, I'm excited. And the moment that it's not there, it it, it is very noticeable to me. Uh, I, again, was not a fast writer uh, by modern standards. Uh, I was basically putting out one book in each series per year for most of my career. But Everybody knew that they're, oh, yeah, well, if the Free Ranch book just came out and he didn't do, you know, he just did the sci fi, now it's going to be fantasy. And people sort of expected their annual fix. And this is once a year, you know? And that's something that actually Patreon taught me, speaking of Patreon, is that uh, when you have something out regularly, it's almost like you're constantly advertising for it because, oh, well, it comes out on the 27th of every month. So as people are looking at their, oh, it's almost time for the new book, like you're sort of in people's heads. So consistency, not even if it's, even if it's not fast, consistency can really build a strong uh, audience. And if you can't write a book a month, which a lot of people can't, um, pick like two months a year or pick three months a year or four months a year where you always have a release. So like Ar Arpel, April and May. No, no, no. Sorry. That's the next month. Oh my gosh. So tired. April, July and December or something. I don't know. Just pick months where you always release a book. And that trains readers to be like, oh, this is the month where a new release comes out. 
Um, and then I did have a couple of thoughts just on burnout. So make sure you have a plan to burn out. Uh, what are you going to do to prevent it? What will you do to get out of it? Um, what will you do if you get it? Um, how will you keep your business running while you take a break? Um, are you willing to do what is necessary for your overall health and happiness? Or are you going, or are you going to force yourself to keep working? Um, because sometimes giving yourself permission to take a break will get you through burnout faster than working through it. Uh, and you need to also recognize what is causing your burnout in the first place. A lot of the time, burnout for me comes from um, personal stress and books not doing well. And so like the Midnight Chronicles not doing well, it's, it's affected my desire to and my excitement to write. And so if you need a little bit of success, then run a promotion or you know do something that will generate that success to get you excited, to get you back to writing again. Um, and above all, recognize that burnout almost always leads to writing books that are below your usual quality. So give yourself permission to do what is necessary for a happier and healthier author. I feel like I'm like doing like some sort of an infomercial. <laughs> From the nine ninety nine, Andrea can teach you how to become a happier, healthier author. Nine ninety nine, oh, selling me short, Lindsay. Wait, wait, no, nine hundred and ninety nine. Thirty thousand dollars for a cruise with me. <laughs> At least put it in the Caribbean. Yes. All right, uh, we'll do listener questions next week. So we are going to go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for listening, everyone, and thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes. This was episode fifty. You can find the show notes at episode fifty at uh, sixfigureauthors.com with the number six, or come say hi in the Facebook group. Just look us up, Six Figure Authors. You know the question you have to answer, <laughs> or you'll find out. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. So long, everybody.